Well, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today, but Genesis 12 will be the jumping off point and it will provide a decent summary of everything that will follow. Today is the second of a five-part series on the kingdom of God. And I believe it's an appropriate topic because we're now in the season that commemorates the birth of Christ the King. And I opened last week by singing some lines from some well-known carols. I won't be doing that this week. Um, But I did so just to illustrate the fact that it's actually hard to find one that does not speak of the king or kingdom in some way. It's much easier to find a Christmas carol that speaks of the king than one that doesn't. And and that just points to the fact that this is a very appropriate topic for Christmas. Last week as well, I gave a definition of the kingdom that I found quite helpful. If we're going to be talking about the kingdom, we need to know what it is we are talking about. And this is not... My definition, it comes from an author named Patrick Schreiner, and I'll repeat it this week, and I'll probably repeat it each week just so it stays in your head and just so it keeps me on track. And here it is. Schreiner says, the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The kingdom is The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Power, people, place. You've got to have all three to have a kingdom. And you see all three of these over and over in the scriptures. And on that note, and thirdly, I made the case last week that the kingdom of God isn't just something that appears for the first time on the pages of the New Testament, in the parables of Jesus or in his Sermon on the Mount. It is central throughout the Scriptures. I quoted uh, a professor at, from Belhaven University last week who, who calls the kingdom the overarching theology of the Bible. Meaning it, it's something that's going to affect how we read the Bible. It's going to have a big impact on our understanding of what God is doing in the Bible. And it's something you see from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible begins with the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And it ends with the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And so today... We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 12 and kind of skim through to the book of Judges. And for the sake of organization, our three points will simply be the king's power, the king's people, and the king's place. Some of you may have just heard me say I was going to go from Genesis 12 to Judges. and Maybe you're a little worried. And I'd like to... Prepare you for this sermon by mentioning a workshop that I'm building in my backyard. 
The goal is to build a structure where I can keep my tools and listen to podcasts and build things. Uh, Additionally, once it is built, it will allow Molly to park her car in the garage out of the elements, which she will appreciate. And it will also keep our family from tracking sawdust in the house, which we all will appreciate. But this is an ongoing project for me. And, and if you've driven by my house in October, you may have seen me in the backyard with a post hole digger, digging the holes for the concrete pillars that would support the weight of the shop. If you came by my house for Trinity's Friendsgiving, you would have seen those concrete pillars poured and maybe you were worried with us that one of the children running in the darkness would trip over one of those. If you'd been at Lowe's a couple Mondays back, you would have seen me driving the minivan through the parking lot with a bunch of treated lumber sticking out of the back of it. If you came by my house this afternoon, you'd be able to walk around on the completed floor. And hopefully, if you drive by in the next couple of weeks, you'll see walls and a roof go up. But here's my point. Building something, especially when you do it yourself takes time. You don't get from the idea on paper to a finished structure immediately. The foundation has to be dug and laid. Wood has to be gathered and cut and attached. There's a whole process that has to happen before I can turn on a podcast, turn on a saw, and start making furniture. And I'm telling you this because I need you To be patient with me. The finished project of what I plan on doing in this sermon series will not be complete until we gather to worship on New Year's Eve. Last week we looked at the Lord preparing the foundation of the kingdom. This week we're going to begin to see some pillars and some of the floor of the kingdom appear. Next week, we'll look at the monarchy and the prophets, and we'll see the walls and roof go up. And we'll be given a clearer picture of what it is that God is building. So today, as we look in Genesis and then parts of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and and Joshua and Judges, be patient with me. Remember that I'm trying to build something. And remember that God is building something. All of this we're going to look at today is working to fulfill the promise that God made in the garden about the king who would come and conquer the serpent. Everything we're talking about today is in the background of the king born in Bethlehem. Everything we're going to see today is in the background of the king who will also one day return and make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so to use a a food analogy as well, we're going to have some salad and vegetables today. The main course is coming. You'll get the main course on Christmas Eve and you'll get dessert on New Year's Eve. But we've got to eat our salad first. And so that's what 
we're going to look at today. So let's pray together and then look to Genesis chapter 12. Almighty God, may we see what you would have for us in your word. Father, we confess that your word is true. We confess that this is a grand narrative, one that even we ourselves are caught up in. Lord, may we see from the scriptures your power and your people and also the place that you have prepared for them. Bless your people as we open your word together and as your imperfect servant preaches it to them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So power, people, and place, they are all here in God's call of Abram. Or listen, I'm just going to simplify it. His name is changed in Genesis 17. I'm just going to call him Abraham from here out. God calls Abraham. And beginning with power, we see the Lord calls this elderly, childless couple to leave their home and their extended family and go to a place that he would show them. And he assures Abraham saying, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who dishonor you. And through what I will do in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everything that's going to follow, the provision of a place to call home, the building of a great family from this childless man and his wife, the blessing of all the families of the earth will happen by the Lord's power. You know, Abraham is the patriarch of Israel, but the great king, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he's the one who does the heavy lifting. He's the one who does the miraculous. And we just see Abraham respond in faith and believe these promises. You know, the power of God is is on full display. You can, I told Molly that you could spend an entire semester just simply looking at the power of God. I mean, when famine drives Abraham and Sarah to Egypt, 
Sarah is taken because of her great beauty and Abraham's cowardice. She's taken into the house of Pharaoh, but the Lord strikes Pharaoh and his house with plagues because it is Abraham and not Pharaoh who will be the father of this nation. The power of God protects Abraham as he comes into conflict with surrounding kings. God Almighty will open the womb of Sarah, this woman who is well past her childbearing years, and he will give her a son named Isaac. You know, a promise that she herself did not believe. She laughed at it. But age and infertility would not stop the Lord. You know, continuing on, one of the greatest exercises of his power is seen in the Exodus. The Lord again afflicts the ruler of Egypt and his people with plagues, showing them that the false gods they trusted in were no gods at all. In one fell swoop, the entire army of Pharaoh is drowned as they follow the people of God across the floor of the Red Sea. And in the, on the shore, Moses will sing of the power of God, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Pharaoh's chariots and his host He cast into the sea, and His chosen officers were sunk Into the Red Sea, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then Moses continues, but will end by saying that the Lord will reign forever and ever. And if you remember back to Exodus, it does not end there. The Lord continues to preserve His people in the wilderness. He leads them by a pillar of cloud when it's daytime and a pillar of fire at night. He causes rocks to gush forth water and manna and quail to fall from heaven that His people might never lack food or drink. We see Him descend with power upon Mount Sinai and crown the mountain with cloud and lightning and fire. Later in the book of Numbers in Joshua, we see this as well. The Lord causes the mouth of a hostile prophet to only speak blessings on his people. And then as the people enter the land, he piles up the water of the Jordan River during flood season so that they can safely pass through. And then by their mere yells alone, He causes the walls of Jericho to to fall down. This is the great king, the most high, who is fighting for his people. And he is the one who's building this kingdom. And he is doing so by his power. Dear saints, I would quickly remind you that this is not just some mythology that we read of. That same power is by His grace at work in you and me today. The power to save people beyond hope. The power to cast down strongholds. 
The power to rob Satan of his subjects. The power to break hearts of stone. The power to remake a people in his likeness. And the power to bring all of his people safely home. That same power is at work in us today. It's the power that continues to uphold and sustain and carry us. And will continue to carry us until kingdom come. And so you and I, in unison with the saints of the past, can confidently proclaim Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There can be no church, no earth, no heaven, no kingdom apart from the power of God. Second is people. You can't have a kingdom without people. And I opened by mentioning the shop I'm building and there were lots of choices to make. What will it look like? Where will the windows and doors be? What color will you paint it? And here in Genesis 12, as the Lord continues to build his kingdom, we see him make a choice. Out of all the people alive on the earth, he chooses one man named Abraham. God chooses this childless man and says, I will make you into a great nation. You know, my mind goes back to creation and how the Lord made the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Everything that is was created out of nothing by the word of the Lord alone. And here we see him say, I'm going to do that again. Out of all humanity... I'm going to choose this man and his elderly, barren wife. And from them, I will make a vast nation. And in chapter 15, God tells Abraham to go outside and look at the stars and try to count them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. In chapter 17... God tells a 99-year-old Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. In Genesis 26, speaking to Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, the Lord says, Isaac, I will multiply your offspring and make them as many as the stars In the heavens. A couple chapters later in Genesis 28, the Lord comes to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in a dream and says, The family that will come from you shall be like the dust of the earth, and it will be spread abroad, scattered north, south, east, and west. You know, thinking back to the account of creation. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. 
And then he filled the sky and sea and land with plants and living creatures. And now he says, I will do something similar. I will take this couple, give them a family, and in time that family will grow and I will cause them to fill the earth. You know, he's speaking about you. He's speaking about you. This family promised so long ago has spread abroad, even to Corinth, Mississippi. And I feel confident saying that. I feel con- you are one of the stars in the sky that Abraham went out and looked at. Now, how can I say that? Well, Paul will write to the church in Galatia and say, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. You know, again, this isn't just ancient history. We are in this same tale. It is still going on. The the great tales never end. And we are called up in one. What's the purpose of having this vast family? Why do this? Well, he repeats it over and over. So that all the earth would be blessed. You know, if you do a word search prior to Genesis 12, You'll see that five times the Lord talks about the earth being cursed. Cursed because of the sin and rebellion of the first family. But here, just in the first three verses of Genesis 12, we see the Lord use the word bless or blessing five times. He's communicating that through this new family, salvation not curse, will come to the world. We're beginning to see the reversals of the curse that through this chosen family, there will not only be numerical expansion, but also an expansion of blessing that will flow out from this couple to all the nations of the world. And since this is the plan of God, it cannot fail, which is why we see him protect this family. He, of course, protects Abraham uh, when he goes out to, to battle against other kings. He protects Abraham's scheming grandson, Jacob, from the vengeance of his brother that he cheated. He protects Jacob's son, Joseph, from his own brothers who wanted to kill him. He protects Joseph after he's sold into slavery and after he is falsely accused of trying to take his Egyptian master's wife. The Lord will cause Joseph to go from a forgotten prisoner to being second in command over all Egypt. And he will warn Joseph of a coming famine and instruct him on what to do so that this chosen family would not starve to death. We see the Lord later safeguard this family in Egypt. You remember how many people entered Egypt? 
under Joseph's watch? 70. Wait, 430 years later, you have hundreds of thousands. They enter Egypt as a family. They leave Egypt as a nation. But they'd grown so much, Pharaoh was threatened by them. And so he comes up with a plan to destroy this nation. It's a plan that has the serpent's scaly fingerprints all over it. He he wants to murder every son born in this family. And then the daughters could be married off (coughs) to the Egyptians. And then the people cease to exist. Satan is utterly opposed to this family spreading blessings to the ends of the earth. He only wants to destroy the line from which the Savior will come. But what does the Lord do? He protects those baby boys and even causes one of them to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, a little child named Moses, who will later be the man God would use to bring his people out of their bondage. Going on, we see the Lord's provision continues in Leviticus. I'm sure that's your favorite book out of all 66. Do you know what Leviticus teaches? What it means to be the holy people of a holy God. And here they have another problem. It's not an enemy on the outside that's threatening to keep this family from being a blessing to all the families of the earth. This time it's the enemy within. It's the people's own dark, sin-stained hearts. And yet in Leviticus, we see the Lord provide. He provides a special day, a day of atonement, when the life of a spotless, sinless creature is ended. Its blood is shed. And by the shedding of this blood, sin is forgiven and the people have peace with God and can dwell with him. We see that he will protect them even from the consequences of their own sin. And as we continue on, we're given glimpses of the expanding kingdom. Instances of when outsiders are brought in. You think of Rahab the prostitute at the beginning of the book of Joshua who is brought in, this foreign woman who is blessed and saved because she fears the Lord. We read of the Gibeonites in Joshua, another foreign people who lie to Joshua in order to be spared. And yet, as we saw in 1 Samuel, they are the ones caring for the ark when no one else in Israel wants to touch it. We see the blessing come to Ruth, another foreign Woman who becomes the great-grandmother of a king we will talk about next week. A king named David. You know, you can't have a kingdom without a people. And what's clear early on in the scripture is that the Lord has chosen a people for himself. And they are a people he will multiply and a people he will protect a people he will forgive, and a people that he will never abandon. And then finally, 
Let's look at the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. You know, beginning again with Abraham, we see that God calls him to leave his own country and go to a place the Lord would show him. Now, Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees, which for us is modern-day Iraq. And God goes to him and says, I want you to leave your home and follow me to a land that I will show you. And Abraham goes, and he's brought into the land of Canaan, a place that will later be described as a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning this is not some desolate waste, but this is a fertile, life-giving land. He's providing a home where his people can live. A place where they can grow as a family. A place where they can live under his rule as their great king. And so he gives them this place. They enjoy the blessings that his arm has won for them. But what's clear even from the garden, but this is hammered in Deuteronomy especially, is that their remaining in the land and their experience of blessing will continue so long as they continue to submit themselves to the rule of their king. It's very simple. God gives his people a homeland If they remain faithful to him, they stay in the land and they're blessed. But if they rebel against their king, if they choose to be their own Lord and go their own way, they will be oppressed and cursed and eventually driven out of their land. We see this in scripture, don't we? We saw it last week in the garden. We'll see it next week in the exile. In in Eden... Our first parents are are given a garden, but they eat from the tree and they are expelled. Abraham is given the land of Canaan and his children and grandchildren dwell there until they're forced by famine to go to Egypt to look for food. Now, this isn't explicitly stated in Scripture, but I think there's got to be a connection between, well, you've got Jacob's sons hating their brother wanting to kill him, selling him into slavery, lying to their father, saying that he was killed by a wild animal. And then there's a famine that comes and pushes them out of the land. A famine that would force them to go to Egypt and humble themselves before that same brother they hated. You see this. Sin and rebellion pushes people out of the land. Or it can delay them. In Exodus and in Numbers, the Israelites wander in circles in the wilderness. They wander and wander until a whole generation has died off. That generation has to go before they are allowed to enter the land, and this is because of their sin. Even in the time of the judges, the people aren't exiled from their God-given home, but they're oppressed within it. The blessings and protections of the Lord vanish because in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And again, we're going to come back to this next week when we see God's people exiled and, and forcibly taken from their home. But it's a principle for us to remember, remaining within the good place that the Lord provides only happens when the people submit themselves to him. And what's clear, again, I feel like I've said that five times, is that if the people are going to remain within this place, they're going to need a good king. They're going to need a faithful king who will rule them and guide them. If the people of God can ever have some sense of security about, well, this is my forever home, they're going to need someone who will reign in perfect accord with the will of the Most High. And the question that we're left asking is, When will this king come? We don't want to be exiled. We don't want to be oppressed. We don't want to be apart from the Lord. We don't want to be removed from this place. So who will come and secure it for us? Who will come and make this place our home forevermore? And for that answer, we've got to wait but we'll get there. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do join the hymn writer in confessing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. You are a powerful God. No one can stay your hand. No one can say, what have you done? You will fulfill your purpose in the building of your kingdom. You have graciously called a people to yourself, a people that did not deserve the calling and blessing and grace that you've lavishly bestowed. And yet you continue to sustain and provide and forgive and protect. And Lord, you have given a place You've given a place for your people where we will dwell with you forever. And so, Lord, would we be able to see such things? Would we see the Lord seated on the throne? Would we see the one who intercedes for us? Would we know that his kingdom is coming forth and that one day it will come in full? And we do long for that day and say, come, Lord, quickly. We pray this all in his name. Amen.